0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: Nice to be here with you, Redwood City. Um, There's a couple things I want to share with you before I get into my talk um, this morning, which will be about identity. Uh, but let me read you my favorite poem, my current favorite poem. It changes, but, but Mary Oliver is often involved. This is called A Settlement. Look, it's summer, and last year's loose dust has turned into this soft willingness. The wind flowers are up, trembling, Slowly the bracken are uplifting their curvaceous and pale bodies. The thrushes have come home, filled with mystery, sorrow, happiness, music, ambition. And I am walking out into all of this with nowhere to go and no task undertaken, but to turn the pages of this beautiful world over and over in the world of my mind. Therefore, dark past, I'm about to do it. I'm about to forgive you for everything. Therefore, dark past, I'm about to do it. I'm about to forgive you for everything." I think that's so beautiful. What if you could forgive, forgive everything? You never made a mistake. You were always exactly doing exactly what you needed to do at the time that there was no there's no fault involved the slate is clean wouldn't that feel wonderful reminds me of a of an Ikkyu poem famous japanese poet how many times do i have to tell you there is no way not to be who you are and where no choice so the Dalai Lama turned 80 and he had a few wonderful things to say at a conversation with, when he was celebrated in, uh, in New York. He said, If you think you are too small to make a difference, try sleeping in a room with a mosquito. <laughs> <laughs> he also said, Know the rules well so you can break them effectively. And this line, compassion is the radicalism of our time. The Dalai Lama and Pope Francis, both on the planet, there is hope, there's hope. So, um, this morning I want to talk about identity, and it's really a talk about dharma, and deep ecology and how they kind of meet, and dharma and science and how they meet, the Buddha and Darwin, how they might have gotten along quite well. Um, I've, I've joked before, and I'll do it again right now, that all of the Buddha's teaching can be summed up in a knock-knock joke. So the disciples come to the Master, and they say, and the Master answers with the number one question, spiritual question, Who's there? Now, if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over again until <laughs> you do get it. But that is, that is the, the question. Um, the Buddha said, that true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I, or self. And ever since we humans grew these big brains, we've been asking ourselves, who are we? we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What's this life in this universe all about? And to answer those questions, we've come up with some fantastic stories about gods and devils and heavens and hells, And humans have become so arrogant, we believe the entire universe was made just for us. That we were separately and specially created. Some of us even believe that we were created in God's image. That God looks like this. (laughs) Go figure. And, and our major religions have come to regard the earth as a kind of training planet, a place where you come and you learn some lessons or burn off some karma, and then you get to go off to some other place where you truly belong. <clears throat> but those, those stories are not only old and a little ludicrous, uh, but they're dysfunctional. They take our reverence away from this world And they remove the human from the web of life. It may be one reason why, these these old stories may be one reason why we are creating such havoc on the planet. Luckily, we're starting to tell ourselves a new story. And the new story says we are intertwined with all and everything. In physics, they talk about entanglement. Or the chaos theory, which says that, you know, every time I move my hand, the whole universe is involved. The new story tells tells us that we are related to all the life that's ever lived. All of us descended from the same single-celled beings. All of us cell brothers and cell sisters. Can you dig it? And this new story we're telling ourselves is based on science, so so it must be true, right? Um, I call it the latest, greatest story ever told. It's really interesting. The Buddha was really a great scientist. He used the scientific method. He said, develop this quality of mindfulness and go into the wilderness of yourself and examine the body, the feelings, the thoughts, and question as you're examining what is the origin, what what is the ancestry of this, this this construct called self. In other words, bring your attention down into this living being and examine it with that question, who am I? What we will find, said the Buddha and Charlie Darwin, what we will find is that none of it is I, me, or mine. That we co-arise with all things, sun, atmosphere, earth, elements, that there are so many factors in our experience that create our experience. To impute a self in there is a stretch, a real stretch. And I think probably everyone in this room believes that the story of evolution is true, but we probably, we don't really get it yet. We haven't really discovered the spiritual message of that story. I think that we need meditations about evolution and uh, rituals and songs and dance. The fact that we are part of this ongoing story, this unfolding story of life on this planet. I thought well we could start by chanting the table of basic elements Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, car. That's kind of mantra quality with all those ums and ons. And- when we meditate, we bring our attention down from the story of our life to the fact of our life, and we actually begin to feel ourselves as living beings. That can happen. That happens. And with a little reflection, it happens more. Just feeling life, with this unique condition, inside of you. With your breath. With every breath, with a little reflection, you realize that you are exchanging nutrients with the plant kingdom. That with every breath, you become a cell, a part of the great breathing of this planet, which is continually breathing one of its characteristics. The story of evolution tells us that we are part of all of this. We're actually created by all the life that came before us. Richard Dawkins has a wonderful reflection. He said, you go back 400 great-grandfathers. You know, all of us can do that. You'll see someone who looks pretty human, but maybe, maybe your grandmother wouldn't mate with this, this being that you saw. <laughs> a little, maybe a little slopehead head model skull, you know, the little flat thing. That, um, go back a million, one and a half million great-grandfathers, We all can do that, too. And you'll have a picture of a fish. Some of your relatives were scaly and could breathe underwater. Phenomenal, huh? Last century, uh, mid-century, Dr. Paul McLean at at the National Institute of Mental Health was investigating the evolution of the brain and realized that we don't have a brain. We have three brains. Uh, right now inside your skull is a fully functioning reptilian brain, the brain stem, the fully functioning uh, mammalian brain, the limbic system, and <clears throat> the neocortex of a new human brain. And there's growing evidence, research, serious scientific research, that indicates that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. (laughs) Not not kidding. That we aren't so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. (laughs) Consciousness comes in late in the game. It's really uh, interesting to begin to look at this story as if we're part of it and see what the message is. If we see ourselves in this story, we are forgiven for all our supposed sins and mistakes because we see that humans are really a baby species there were millions of generations of dinosaurs and millions of generations of mammals before humans came came along we've had maybe 20 30,000 generations of modern homo sapiens we just got these big brains you know we don't know how to use them very well yet they didn't come with an instruction manual and you know we're just a, a baby species humans should not be tried as adults <laughs> that's you are forgiven you know you're completely forgiven. I, th- th- I think that's my favorite, the fa- my favorite line, the line that I love the most that has popped into my head over the last number of years. You are not your fault. Doesn't that feel good? If we see, if we see ourselves in this story of evolution, our family increases a million, million fold. We see we are related to all living beings through this miracle molecule, DNA, this elegant, spiraling double helix, deoxyribonucleic acid, Much too cold and clinical a term for this magic substance. It seems to be what separates life from non-life. All life is guided by DNA. So I'm trying to create a new acronym. I'm trying to get people to, when you see or hear the letters DNA, think divine natural abundance. DNA, divine natural abundance. Kind of giving it a spiritual spin. You probably know this, you may not. Uh, 99.999% of your DNA is identical to the DNA of the person sitting next to you. The instructions for building and maintaining you are almost exactly the same as the instructions for building and maintaining me, and the Dalai Lama, and House Speaker John Boehner, and (laughs) Oprah, Britney Spears. We, we share, uh, our, our individual difference is just a thin coat of paint over the basic human design. Um, we share over 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees, nearly 90% with mice, with mice. That's because most of the information for building and maintaining you is information for building and maintaining a basic mammal. We share nearly 50% of our DNA with worms. And, hold on. almost with yeast. Now, if we declare ourselves divine, is the slime not also divine? And if not, where do you draw the line? Who Who gets a soul, you know? Snails, mushrooms? See, the story of evolution doesn't deny our divinity in any way. It may deny our exclusive divinity, however. There's a great uh, t-shirt put out by the biology department at UC Santa Cruz. It says, you share 25% of your DNA with bananas, get over yourself. (laughs) That's That's the message. Also, a good case could be made that the universe was created for bacteria, single-celled bacteria and microbes. and They were here first, right? They appeared on Earth 3.8 billion years ago today. <laughs> Happy birthday to you, too. And they have thrived, and they are everywhere. There, there's all these news stories coming out about your biome. Turns out that there are more individual living beings inside your mouth right now than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. They have churches and houses and roads, <laughs> whole civilization between your cheeks. There's some speculation that bacteria invented humans as a moving feedlot. (laughs) You get get room and board in a tour of the neighborhood, you know. (laughs) Of course, the main reason for the success of those little beings is that uh, they reproduce by just dividing. You don't have to take each other out to dinner first or anything. (laughs) And now we know that we are related to those beings. They invented invented mobility and oxygen breathing and sexuality. All those things come from those little microscopic beings who found each other in the depths of the sea and started creating multi-celled beings, just to keep the stories, get the story going a little more intricately. But we are, uh, we are a new kind of animal now. Human beings. I hope you're not offended. That is how our eminent scientists classify us. I know some of you are in denial. You know, you go to a supermarket or a cafe, there's a sign in the window, no animals allowed. People walk right through. They just, <laughs> no animals here. Well, I think we should be proud to be part of that kingdom of beautifully arrayed creatures. But we are are a new kind of animal. Our ancestors came down from the trees about four million years ago, four or five million years ago. Among them was an ape woman who the scientists have named Lucy, the mother of us all so we can assume that the father of us all was Ricky. (laughs) And we started hanging out on the savanna, learned how to use crude stone tools, became what is now known as Homo habilis, or handyman. Yeah. And handyman started standing upright more often, Fix a leaky roof, maybe. Pretty soon we were standing up all the time, or a lot of the time, and became what is now known as Homo erectus, or upright human. And we're not talking morality here. Obviously, for obvious reasons, soon after we stood upright, the loincloth was invented you know, the four leggeds, all their private parts are kind of hidden. But once we stood up, you know, it wasn't good. <laughs> so uh, now, standing up was apparently a very important moment in our evolution because it's associated with a rapid increase in brain size. Now, you'd think that standing up would cause our feet to swell instead, but this is the theory. Standing up left our hands free to work with tools, spears and axes and chopsticks. And and we needed more brain connections to uh, deal with the more precise movement of our hands and fingers. So this feedback loop was created, better hands, bigger brains, bigger brains, better hands. Also, standing up, up, left our arms free to carry our stuff around. So we started migrating out of Africa. Uh, nobody knows exactly why we left. I suspect it was to look for Chinese food. <laughs> At the time, our brains were only half the size they are today. Or we might have been able to figure out how to send out for Chinese food. But <laughs> Anyway, start, we started wandering around... Uh, the planet our brains kept growing uh, a lot of speculation about why uh, probably getting caught in an ice age or two was one of the reasons you know we had to think hard and fast how to stay warm it would have been simpler to just grow a heavier coat of fur but we didn't think it of of it at the time because our brains were too small anyway we've Grew bigger brains, learned how to make fire, and began sitting around that fire and telling stories about ourselves, like this one I'm telling you right now, the story of, of evolution. This, this is my brain on evolution.
0: <laughs>
1: All of us. And at some point, our brains got so big they, cut, they outgrew our skulls. We had to get the rounded, dome-shaped skull. The old sloped model just wouldn't hold all the brain. Um, So about 40,000 years ago, blink of an eye in biological time, just yesterday, our immediate ancestors appear, the Cro-Magnon people, and they began having elaborate burial rituals, making masks and jewelry, obviously having reached a new level of self-awareness and begun asking the big questions, you know, who am I, where did we come from, where are we going, is there an afterlife, can we invent one? And uh, it's my theory that the Cro-Magnon people were the first to display a sense of humor, which they got by watching Neanderthals work with tools. you know they were always dropping they you could never figure out the pliers you know the <laughs> so 10,000 years ago 10 to 12,000 years ago the last ice age is beginning to melt and our great 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 grandparents are beginning to work with agriculture live in cities and the last 10,000 years has been a complete revolution of the life of this planet due to the behavior of our species. Complete revolution. Now we can fly off the planet. We can see to the edges of the universe. We can see deep inside of matter. We know how things work pretty generally in chemistry, in physics, biology. In just the last couple hundred years, we've nearly doubled the expected life, sp- lifetime of, of a human being. So you get pretty much twice as long to be yourself. Uh, just a few generations ago, most of our grandparents were peasants. Not very long ago, and now most of us are asked to absorb many volumes of information in a lifetime. Operate fairly sophisticated machinery. It's a whole new world, and considering that and how quickly it's happened, I think we're doing a pretty good job of being humans, actually. You know, there are some major problems, major flaws. Definitely, there's too many of us. Some of you will have to go... It's, it's, really, it's, really, it's really important, and I, nobody ever talks about it, and I just talked about it. Uh, but uh, it's really a whole new world out there, and I, I do think we're doing pretty good. We're, we're still working with brains designed for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. That's according to the evolutionary bio- uh, psychologists and biologists. Which would explain our addiction to shopping. <laughs> you know, if it's out there, you go get it. It's, um, it's kind of obvious. Um, it also may help explain our confusion in our territorial ways. But if we look at ourselves in the story of evolution there's a lot of reason for hope. We see first of all that life has survived all sorts of catastrophes, continents bumping into each other, comets crashing into the earth, ice ages, plagues, Henry Kissinger. It's, we have, life is tough and may very well survive humans. Also, we see that just 2,500 years ago, the Axial Age, we had Lao Tzu in China, Socrates in Greece, the Buddha in India. Obviously, a revolution in consciousness and self-awareness. 2,500 years ago, a blink of a blink of a blink of an eye in biological time. We're just sort of waking up. I really like to have that image as, as we meditate, that we're not really... We're, we're doing it for ourselves, but we're also doing it as members of a species at a particular moment in evolution, trying to awaken, trying to find our commonality and trying to learn ways that we can be free of the, of the instincts that we've inherited from the past of evo- uh, you know, our evolutionary past. Can we gain any freedom over these? Do we have to be Aggressive and acquisitive. We want to stay inquisitive, but um, so we see that revolution and realize just uh, less than a hundred years ago, we knew of one galaxy in the universe. We called it a nebula. The latest estimate is that there is 100 to 200 billion galaxies containing 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. And it was all made just for us. (laughs) A little harder to uh, believe that. And now, of course, they're finding thousands and thousands of planets in our in our galaxy alone that could support life. Galaxies, uh, they're full of suns that could support life. Planets uh, that could support life. I think that's really good news. It's starting to look obvious that there's life everywhere in the cosmos. I think it's a great piece of news because it takes the pressure off of us. Right? What a relief. It's not all about us. We don't have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. You're off the hook. <laughs> if, we find, if we do find life in another galaxy, then we'll have to become, talking about identity, we'll have to become galaxy-identified. We'll be Milky Wayans. <laughs> and in the intergalactic sporting events, we will be chanting, you know, hip hooray for Milky Way. And, uh, these are the jokes, obviously. <laughs> but, hope. Hope uh, in that we are just waking up to, the, to such things as the size of the universe. And we now know that life has gone from a single-celled being to a being with a hundred trillion cells. That's you. me. And inside each of your cells is a little strand, actually two yards when stretched out, of DNA containing the equivalent of thousands of volumes of information in every single one of your 100 trillion cells. The whole history of life is stitched inside of you. Everything that life knows, stitched inside of you. your brain processes an estimated 11 million bits of information a second. And you hardly have to lift a finger. Considering the complexity and the creativity, amazing construction of this being that we are, it's hard not to believe that there's something behind it, some purpose, some meaning, some design, God, I said the, the word. Oh. <laughs> this famous, the famous scientist E.O. Wilson, beautiful writer, great, great scientist, says to imagine a human being being created through random chance in the universe is like trying to imagine a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747. Something going on, we don 't know what it is, but it's so wonderful to be in awe of it and to have it as part of our as part of our tools to find liberation to understand our place in this big story. I find it very uh liberating and and also creating a new sense of belonging. You know, we're all part of this, this grand drama, this great experiment. I call it God's little biosphere project, you know. And when I get depressed or discouraged, I often try to remember, it's taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make me. There's cause for some self-esteem. You know, what a project. (laughs) 13.7 billion years working on me. So, seeing ourselves in this story, there's hope, there's liberation, and there's love for the world, which is where we want to start with our Environmental work, doing it out of love. We're not going to save the the, the planet, you know. It ain't going to happen. The sun will burn out. We're just doing the best we can and trying to create as little suffering as we can, and alleviate as much suffering as we can while we're here. So, I think we have some little time for discussion if you uh, would like to add or amend anything I've said. or You know, I, I, I like scientists who tell me, no, you got it wrong. It was billion, not million or, you know. Remember, are you old enough to remember when million was a big, big number? I've been playing a game w- with friends. We, we start a sentence by, I'm so old I remember, and then you fill in. So uh, some of our, I'm so old I remember when the only people who had tattoos were in the Navy. <laughs> or I'm so old I remember when women were embarrassed if their bra strap was showing. remember? I'm so old, I remember going out and getting in my car and driving around for entertainment purposes. (laughs) It was called going for a ride. (laughs) I'm so old, I remember the 1900s.
0: Yes. What do you
1: think Facebook's function is? <laughs> in, the, in, the in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> uh, in the grand scheme of
0: things. Yeah.
1: Room. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, there was all this talk, uh, especially around the Whole Earth Catalog people, Stuart Brand, and when when the computers started to come or, come alive and everybody had them, and they thought, well, we're going to. All these communities of virtual communities, but vir- communities will be created, and it'll be a really uh, wonderful thing. And now you see people walking around, you know, like this, and that's, by the way, w- why we have an oppos- opposable thumb is to text. We finally <laughs> discovered the reason for it. But I, I think overall, it's it's yet to be known what. All of this, I mean, I'm here in the heart of Silicon Valley, but I suspect that it's, um, I don't know, it's not good for us. <laughs> <laughs> the, that we're too, we're too lost in our individual story anyway. I mean, that's what, why we're all here in some way. And uh, when you can go into your own entertainment world um, through the screen it sort of cuts you off from to some degree I think from connecting with people on an energetic level. I'm just old, you know I'm old and in the way <laughs> I'll be gone soon do what you want
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah That was a wonderful talk. Thank you. And I'd like to it, it occurs to me as you're talking that as as exciting as the story is, I think that when I was in college we did not know about DNA.
0: Yeah. When, when I was
1: in college we did not know about tectonic plates. So Yeah. So think about what's gonna happen in the lives of yeah. some young people in this room that we can't even imagine really thank you for saying that yeah it's a revolution yeah when did uh, when did they discover the dna was it the 50s mid 50s yeah, yeah. And, and tectonic plates at the same time uh-huh. period yeah i i don't i don't think we really have absorbed the new information we at least haven't turned it, it just like you know you know that everything is changing all the time and it but it's not until you can kind of integrate that into your the marrow of your being, your behavior, doesn't change. You, don't, yeah. you still hold on, you know, as if it wasn't true. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> um, I get,
2: uh, thank you for your talk. I really appreciate that. Um, I, I studied evolution in, in grad school, and so I've been kind of processing some of this, too, alongside Buddhist practice, because it's, it's a little bit mind-blowing, and you kind of can't get your mind around it. Um, but I, I guess it seems like there are some basic things. Because if it, I feel like when I get too much into the numbers, it's like my brain can't really intuitively understand even a thousand miles away, and then I start thinking about billions of years, and it, it just doesn't really go anywhere. Right. Right. Um, but like when I when I'm hanging out with my um, you know, with my nieces and nephews, and I can, and we're like at the beach or everything, and I, and they're like, "Where did all this come from?" I'd be like, "Well, you know, you basically started with this giant ball of hydrogen helium gas. <laughs> you left it alone, and you end up with rose bushes, giraffes, and human beings. Like if that's not a miracle. I don't know it is. Yeah. You're related to all of life. Really, you have feelings. Your dog has feelings too, because mm-hmm. you know, you guys, that that those parts of the brain have descended from the same mm-hmm. ancestor. Um. And but it seems like one of the most fundamental things is, is you know, like the idea of cell. Mm-hmm. And you take a single human cell and you, so I'm, look, I'm working on um, mitochondria right now. So it has applications to aging and stuff like that. So, uh-huh. But it's interesting because they have their own genome that has a separate origin than the rest of the cell. It was actually like a little bacterium that came and started living as an endosymbiont. And then eventually that actually became one single organism. So it's like even if you look at one single cell, you can't really...
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The, the idea of being separate doesn't even work at that
1: uh-huh. level. And the mitochondria figured out how to take the sun's energy and turn it into our living energy, right?
2: Um, yeah, so the, so, so the chloroplasts in, in, the, in plants, they have a similar story where they were something free-living and then they started... Um, had the same relationship, but I guess after all of that, where I get down to is like is like I've recognized that I have a fundamental like that the way I see reality is objectively different from how it actually is. So I guess I should meditate more.
1: <laughs> <laughs> never hurts. Never hurts. I just let me tell you and, and also everybody, if if you I wrote a book called Buddha's Nature which is about evolution and dharma and how they they kind of the message is kind of uh similar and they they meet each other the buddha said for instance the body he said this body is not mine or anyone else's it has arisen due to causes and conditions for now it should be felt but uh, the, i mean he he really is saying you know that we, we co-arise that the, the self is, is an illusion that we've created. It's got obvious survival uh, uh, importance, you know, to think of yourself as important and moving through the world. And in fact, uh, a, a guy named uh, Damasio, expert on emotions says that the whole concept of self, the whole feeling of being a separate self, comes from the fact that your brain is continually mapping your inner world and the outer world so that you can safely move through it. And uh, that's what gives you a sense of self. It's basically the survival programming. Anyway. Yeah. Get those mitochondria you got you got any you can show us uh, you gotta look her real close <laughs> So uh, yeah, one more
0: I'm so old,
1: I can remember when um water fountains and bathrooms and department stores were segregated and uh and the balconies of movie theaters were reserved for colors. And so I, th- you know, even as things get worse,
0: this just tells me this,
1: we're making progress too. Yes. So I, the other uh, thing I wanted to say is several parts of your talk reminded me of a quote that I liked by uh, Oscar Wilde, which goes, uh, we're all lying in the gutter, but some of us look up at the stars. So I guess that's why we make progress if we do. Thank you what, what, Can I ask you where you lived, where the segregation all where, where what city where you, did you grow up in Dallas, Texas? explains everything. Thank you. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, that's true. They're insurance redlining, you know. Yeah. Anyway, let's. Uh, all right, one more, and then we'll sit. Yeah. And yeah. We'll <laughs> close it out.
0: Yeah.
1: This gentleman.
0: Yeah, I have some uh, questions. Uh, like, you can help me to understand. Like. So you you said, uh, if it's science, it's probably truth, right? So I I disagree with that, like, from the statement that this gentleman said, like, by that that his time, like, people might believe there's nothing like DNA. So now we believe in something that scientists say, like, oh, there's DNA. And then tomorrow somebody else will tell some story. Some new research comes up, and then people, people like it. they, say they have some uh, some evidence, something like that. What is truth? I, I believe that truth never changes, right? So if it's a truth, it has to stay at the same same state after a million years, hundred years, whatever. What I think is like truth is Buddhist teachings is exactly true even today. 2,500 years ago it was truth, and tomorrow it's truth. <laughs> okay. So that's the truth. Thank you. I think. Thank you. And then I have one more uh, question. Like, So when I hear the stories of Buddha's time, uh, in I usually, I, I'm from Sri Lanka, I, I listen to some talks from uh, Tripitaka. So when I hear those stories, like, I feel like we are not like evolutionarily like our brains, the people who live these days. I feel like totally opposite. Like we are so behind what, what we had during the Buddhist time. Like how powerful they are, how mindful they were. And then when I think about the brain, I don't agree that we are evolutionarily like developed kind of thing. So you can help me to uh, I understand. can't
1: help you no. <laughs> thank you for thank you for saying that though. I think there's you know truth truth changes and some truth doesn't seem to change. Change itself seems to be a truth that doesn't change. <laughs> so let's just sit for a minute together in silence and let all that Information just wash, wash through, (coughs) empty out. Feel your, feel your aliveness. This unique condition, piece of the universe that wonders about itself.
2: Just a reminder, our center is based on the help of volunteers and our own generosity. Today's potluck, we can use chairs out around the table, so as you exit, you might want to take a chair to place it near the table, and there's always um, opportunities for dishwashing and straightening up afterward, and our speakers and the operations are all based on your generosity. If you're so moved, there's a Donna box at the at the uh, entrance thank you and Wes thanks for reminding me of the expression dig it (laughs) this was
1: thank you all it's been a pleasure to be here with you our paths will probably cross again someday let's hope be well evolve well